Bigfoot, Skunk Ape, Grassman, Sasquatch. Just a few of the names given to the primate-like creature said to roam the woods and remote areas of North America. Tales of this elusive being go back for hundreds of years. Is it mere myth and legend? Or is there truly something more tangible to this phenomenon? Join us on this journey as we discuss the science behind the encounters, the research and the evidence, keeping you updated on the latest findings, ideas, and hypotheses. Arrogance gets us nowhere, and closing one's eyes doesn't make things disappear nor less real. Today's myth could be tomorrow's reality. It's time to make this subject matter less taboo. Welcome to Monster X Radio. Bigfoot without the BS. Welcome to Monster X Radio. Hope you're all doing well. My guest this evening is Shane Land, PhD and founder of the Hominology Magazine. Shane, though fairly new to the Sasquatch phenomena, has really dived into the research of this subject matter head first. Shane has recently written a book on Sasquatch called Bigfoot Unclassified, an unconventional assessment. We talked to him about his new book and much, much more. Now, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the show, Shane. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Talk to you again. Absolutely. Pleasure to have you on the show here. And uh, for those listening this evening on Monster X Radio, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background? Certainly. Uh, well, first and foremost, uh, I'm a newcomer to the uh, to the field of uh, the the Bigfoot study. Uh, just a little over a year now. Um, background, I've kind of a, a jack of many trades, uh, several years in military service of both the Air Force and the Army, uh, where I served as a security specialist in the Air Force and then an intelligence analyst and also medic in the Army. After my, my stint with them, uh, which lasted just over 16 years, I went to work for the federal government on a special project in Afghanistan uh, as an intelligence specialist there for uh, I spent about uh, what 28 months with with the federal government, and then uh, started uh, attended a course that they sent me to, where I was asked to stay on as an instructor, as the uh, as an advisor uh, instructor at the combat advisory course, and then uh, uh, went to went to Africa after that on a special assignment for a, a contract position with the State Department and. Finally found my way to Alaska, where I tried to settle down a little bit, which is where I am now. Originally from originally from the North Georgia area, um, but found my way to Alaska and been here going on be seven years come Jan, uh, February, so be seven years already. That's a little bit about my background in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah, you still have a a little bit. It sounds like a little bit of a accent, a little Georgia accent. Well, you know, you can take the boy out of the country, but not the country out of the boy. They say. <laughs> so, uh, 
the, always important always important not to lose who you are absolutely you got a little georgia and alaska now yeah yeah i could be one in the same depending on where you live <laughs> all right well okay so you're, you're in the military you're, you're moving around what got you into the sasquatch subject well, I was up here uh, in September of last year, 2018. I had some relatives come up to visit and uh, had taken them, was taking them around, showing them some different places in Alaska that a lot of uh, the tour services and, and tourists that come up don't necessarily get to see unless they see it from a uh, window of a, of a bus that they're on passing by. And um, just so happened that one of the ladies uh, had wanted to go back down to to the vehicle in the parking area. So we walked back down uh, from this area and she happened to look up and she's like, what is that? And I said, what are you talking about? And she's like, that right there, what is that? And lo and behold, uh, what I was witnessing <laughs> was, was, was something that, that literally left out of the pages of mythology and folklore and legend and uh, right, into, right into my face. And, and it took me a while, honestly. It took me about five and a half, almost six months to really come to the conclusion of what I had seen that day. And, and I, I really started researching the subject. You know, growing up in Georgia, we always had the, the stories, but, you know, we, we didn't get much Bigfoot activity in Georgia back in those days in the, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it was always a story that, that had been around, and you always saw bits and pieces on television shows of, you know, the Patterson-Gimlin film or some of the latest and greatest uh, possible sightings or tracks found and stuff like that. But never really had I been directly involved with it. I had a couple of times up here camping in, uh, in Alaska. I, I typically go camping um, as much as I can during the summer months. And uh, typically I'm by myself, maybe me and my dog. And I've had some, I've had some knocks or whistles, but didn't really pay that much attention to them. You know, I'm just, just let it, whatever it was. I knew, I knew it wasn't a, um, a bear whistling at me or, or knocking on the tree, but you know, I just kind of chopped it up to, you know, you're, you're 40 miles back up in the middle of nowhere and, and you're going to hear things that you don't typically hear, uh, closer to town. So, right. yeah, but that's what really got me involved. And, uh, I started just like anybody else, I guess I jumped in by, you know, doing research online, reading several books, watching documentaries, countless hours of those, you know, and had obviously uh, seen, seen yourself and Derek uh, long before we actually ever met. I'd seen you guys on some documentaries. So, and, and, and you know, but I, I kept struggling with what I was learning, how I was learning and decided that, you know, I need to approach this from a, from a different perspective because this is a, this is an unconventional topic. And you have to approach unconventional topics and unconventional methods and by unconventional manners. And so that's really what I did was I started looking at things traditionally from scientific perspectives, but I also stayed outside the box and, and thought a little more asymmetrically, which really opened my eyes to, to a lot of things in this field is that um, not binding myself to traditional scientific perspectives on, on this question is, it's really been enlightening for me. So basically Shane, from your time in Georgia, you had some knowledge or at least you were aware of the Sasquatch phenomena. And then you had this experience, this uh, sighting in Alaska. And though you wrestled with what you saw, 
you eventually come to terms with it five to six months down the road, you're more intrigued than ever and you want to figure out what you actually saw. I mean, correct? Yeah. Oh yeah. And, 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 you know, and meeting people and talking to people and, um, you know, who, who had had, you know, decades of experience in, in this field. And, and I think that was, that was one of the biggest aspects of, you know, research into the question is to find those people, seek those people out that you can that are extensively knowledgeable in this field and, and sit down and talk to them uh, if they're willing to sit down and talk and listen. And uh, that's, that's basically what I did. And, you know, it led me to my aha moment where I definitively made the call that what I saw was what I saw. And uh, nobody will change my mind about that. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> and, 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 you know, and that makes me no different than anybody else. I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I was watching a documentary last night and I saw something that, that, that they said was rather interesting. And it was that a lot of, uh, a lot of white people will have problems with wrapping their head around what it was they saw. But when you speak to Native Americans, you know, they immediately know what they saw and stand behind it but it takes us a longer a longer amount of time to, to to wrap our minds around it and i think that's just through you know growing up and conditioning and stuff the way that we have been and uh and to get away from that that common narrative that there's no way that something like this could possibly exist uh to break free from that it it takes some it takes some courage and it takes a little bit of of um opening your mind to the possibility that, that this being could in fact, or does exist. And once, once you're able to accept that, I think personally, then, then a lot of, a lot of things open up for you a lot more, not really doors, so to speak, but I think you open your mind up to a lot more possibilities. So after you had this encounter, this sighting, and you're going through the process of, did I see it? Did I not see it? And then you come to, you know, the realization that you definitely saw what you saw. I mean, Sasquatch exists now. You know, how did it really shape your life after that? Well, it, it led me to wanting to, to find answers, uh, just, like, just like anybody else that gets into this field or any other field that deals with cryptozoology or perhaps ufology or whatnot. Um, you know, you, you're left with, number one, trying to process what it was that you saw. Can, can you wrap your mind around what you saw by unwrapping everything that you've been led to believe nearly probably your entire life. And, and that was really kind of where my journey began was, okay, I want answers. And the answers that I'm finding just quite, you know, yeah, they answer some questions, but they don't answer maybe the questions that I have about what it was that I saw and the possibility. I mean, you can always boil it down to, you know, was it, you know, was it a case of mistaken identity? Was it a bear? Was it a, a human? Was it the way the, the sunlight was reflecting on, you know, the area where this, this being was walking across and uh, perfectly silhouetted on a ridgeline and, you, you know, trying to adjust to making the attempt to say, okay, hey, this is what I saw. I finally believe what I saw. Now what's next? And that, that was really where I jumped into my research and, and really kind of starting writing down ideas and, and, and taking notes on uh, different topics within 
uh, that, that float across the Bigfoot community in, in, in regard to the phenomenon. And uh, I really just started digging into the research, decided to finish up my education in, in metaphysical sciences and really decided to apply that education and my background um, in intelligence work to this phenomenon. And that's really what kind of uh, kind of dragged me in. I, I enjoy the analytical aspects of everything. I enjoy reading the reports. I enjoy watching the videos. I enjoy getting pictures and photos sent to me to analyze and and and, and give back my feedback on it. With, with the exception of the background information contained in witness reports, any videos or or photographs that I look at, I, I prefer not to know the background of the situation so that I can conduct an analysis, you know, without any preconceived notions and, and give my findings back and whether they're, those are accepted by the people that send me stuff. It's, you know, it's really up to them, not up to me. I just look at it and say, okay, here's what I see and here's why I see it. And this is what it looks like to me, you know, but, but yeah, I just, I dove in, I really, I dove in head first. I went to that first conference, which is where I met, you know, you and Derek and, and uh, Todd Neese and, and, and Cliff and, you know, several other people, Dr. Meldrum, went to that conference, got to sit down and talk with you guys it, really extensively. I think that was to be able to sit around and hear all of you talk that, that many years of experience sitting around a table. You know, sometimes you, you need to know when to keep your mouth shut. And that was one of those times for me is that I needed to keep my mouth shut and listen to what was what was being discussed. and. You know, you guys all took me, took me in at the table and, and it was like, this, this is for me, that was, that was probably the best part of that conference for me. <laughs> so, um, you know, and the conference had not even started yet at that point. So um, being able to meet everybody and talk to everybody and then going to, you know, an, another event and, and meeting folks like uh, Ron Moorhead, actually meeting Bob Gimlin, sitting down and talking with, with them and Joe Hauser and, and others. You know, that's what I, was, I go back to earlier, where I feel like if you can put yourself in a situation where you can seek out the mentorship or the guidance of people who have decades of experience in this field, then what your research will probably turn into will be far better because you've gotten all of these different perspectives from people and, and you take all those different perspectives and you can apply those to just about any any topic with that, that lay within this Bigfoot question. You know, you have different people that have expertise in other fields that they've come and applied to this question. And that, that in and of itself is, you know, there's, there's just such a wealth of knowledge there that if, if you're capable of tapping into that and you can do that, then I would suggest to any researcher out there, do that, you know, because most everybody that I've met has always taken the time to talk to me. You know, they're, they, they are willing to talk. You just, you just got to go and, and ask the questions. Don't be scared to approach the people. You know, people can get a little gun shy by, by seeing you guys because, you know, they've seen you on documentaries and they hear you on the radio and, and they, they follow your, your research. And, you know, so it can be, it can be a little overwhelming for somebody who maybe is just getting in, started into the field, say like I was to approach you all. And, uh, but once you get past that and see that, you know, the, these folks are not going to bite you, you know, that more than likely they're, they're far, <laughs> far more willing to talk to you than to, to, to grab you by the arm and bite you. So just 
take the, take the chance to talk to him. <laughs> well, yeah, I appreciate that, Shane. And the thing is, you you know, at that initial conference, it was the group of us were rather enamored with you, and you were a gentleman. Uh, and it was just an absolute pleasure talking with you. We had a blast that night, and uh, now we've had this contact with you. And I know you've been out with Todd Neese and and, and these others, so uh, that really shows the kind of person you are. And we're all the same at the end of the day. We're in it for the same reasons. And uh, we're all kind of partners in this. Now, what year did your experience, your sighting happen? It was September 4th of 2018. Yeah, so very, very recently. I mean, here you yeah, Just you, over a year ago. Yeah, it, but this really sent you on a journey. I know you've written this fantastic book. I've got a copy. And I'm really amazed at how you managed to put something of this caliber together in such a short amount of time as I see it. I, if I sat down to write a book, it's probably gonna take me 10 years. <laughs> so <laughs> I was really impressed with that. Now tell me, you have the sighting, you start delving into the research, uh, you start talking to people, going places, you've done a lot of traveling. How did the idea for your book, Bigfoot Unclassified, an unconventional assessment come about? Well, the, you know, the book actually started off it started off in one direction and then I, you know, had one of those aha moments where I, I felt like that I was going in the opposite direction that I should, that I should with this book. I really started off wanting this book to be on uh, strictly on maybe 10 to 15 case studies where I was going to do the observed behavioral analysis um, that has been directly witnessed by, by so many. Obviously I've included the Patterson Gimlin film in there, the Osman abduction. You know, and there are countless others. Um, I started in that direction and had one of those aha moments. I'm like, you know what? I'm trying to, I'm trying to force feed something here, and instead of letting this book take its natural course, you know, I need to back off of what I'm doing and let that happen. So that's what I did. And you know, I had, I like I said earlier, I, I started writing down things, um, taking notes on certain topics in the field that you may see on some of the Facebook pages where. You know, they discuss the nephilim or they discuss the the genetic experimentation and such like that. And, and I really kind of started writing these topics down that were of interest to me that really piqued my interest. I mean, this field is as broad as it is long and deep. And there are countless, countless subtopics to explore and research and analyze to include the photos and video evidence, the, the sound recordings. What I thought was, you know, maybe I need to go a little bit different in a different direction, which is really why. I started delving into the, the behavioral analysis that had been the behavior that had been reported by so many witnesses. What were they doing? And not just the what that they were doing, the what that was presented. I started delving into a deeper analysis of the why they might possibly do, be doing what they're doing when they've been directly observed or, or maybe even have been observed observing us in some way. And so I really kind of started delving into that more. The whole the whole thing with the unclassified portion, that all came about with the FBI document release back in June. And it was it was as I was you know restructuring my book and adding some things and taking some things away, this whole FBI documentation, you know, kind of falls in everybody's lap back in back in June. And so I was like, "Well, man, so I I printed off the documents and started looking at them. I put them in chronological order, started looking at them and really, really, really scrutinizing these documents. And I'm going, you know what? 
I've seen a lot of this before, maybe not on this this particular document, but I've seen a lot of a lot of similarities in my background and things that I've done with documentation and what I'm seeing now. And I remember um, sitting at my coffee table and uh, my stepdaughter was there and I was like, hmm. And she's like, what? Well, I'm like, I, I, I know far too much. I, I got to put this down. And, uh, and I started making notes uh, in a red pen on different, different pages. And uh, one of the pages ended up having more red writing on it than, than what the black writing was that, that came across. And so I was like, you know what? I need to do an analysis on this and, and, wow. bring, and bring this to light because, you know, and, and it goes back to the, to the why behind the what. Um, what was presented were these documents. Why were these, first of all, why were these documents generated, created in the first place? And then the why of everything that's going on behind the what that's been, that was that was presented in the documentation. And just when I thought, Shane, I, I had finished all of that up, I took a trip down to Oregon to visit with Todd and Diane Neese and uh, go down and, and finally meet Peter Byrne. And just when I thought I'd finally finished it up, I'm down at Todd's house and we're perusing his personal library. And I came across this little folder and a, uh, a plastic sheet. And it was <laughs> the FBI documents released in 1996 that had been the same set of documents that uh, a researcher in uh, Ohio, Jody Cook, had, had put together back in the, you know, the late 90s. And I'm going, oh my gosh! So I start opening, I open that up and start perusing through it. Well, I come across a lot of information in the 1996 release that had been redacted in the 2019 release. And so I sit down with Todd, and because I had my file with me, and I'm like, look at this, and look at this, and look at this. So it, it turned into a bigger project at that point because then I had to do a comparative analysis of both uh, both sets of documentation and come to some conclusions about it about you know, not just the why behind the what, but, you know, also the what if with the why and the what, you know, one of the what ifs was, you know, or, or the big, the big questions was why was this documentation, you know, maintained in such a classified or confidential status for, for so many years. And, you know, because, you know, you talk to people and a lot of people didn't know about the 1996 release. I know I didn't. And, you know, I don't even think Todd recalled, um, having that on his bookshelf, but he's like, Oh, I remember when I actually got that. And, uh, so I was like, well, I need to borrow it. <laughs> so <laughs> he said, he's like, go ahead. So I did. And, and, uh, that's what really turned it, turned the title into being, you know, Bigfoot unclassified and unconventional assessment. Because like I said earlier, we're dealing with an unconventional topic. And what I believe is, you know, we're always talking about trying to find hard evidence. And what I believe is these, sets of documentation provide a, a some very hard factual evidence of the government and scientific community's interest into the phenomenon itself. You know, several things happened with this documentation. You know, there was a, an exception to Bureau policy that was requested and approved from the third highest ranking member of the Bureau at the time. Um, everything was done in the name of research and scientific inquiry. And so those, those generate more questions and lead to, you know, lead to other questions that you say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. If, if the government and science believe that this is nothing more than a mythical creature as they, as they've, you know, stuck to all these years, 
then why in the world would they authorize an exception to bureau policy in the name of research and scientific inquiry? And, you know, because government funds science, funds government, you know, and so it's, it's, it's a cycle. You know, government turns to science for big results. Uh, government will, you know, fund science for big results. Uh, I don't think that that's any secret to any of us out there. Um, but when you stop and think about this question, why in the world would, would they do so? I mean, because we're talking, you know, the initial, the initial examination of this hair sample that had been sent to them by Peter Byrne uh, was, you know, in the 1975-76 time era or 76-77 time frame. And so we're basically still on the hills of the Patterson-Gimlin film that's still being hotly debated and contested. Um, you know, we're, we're still looking at the Washington State Atlas that refers to Bigfoot in it. You know, so, so we're not talking about a time that's 25 years after the Patterson-Gimlin film or the topic, you know, having kind of, you know, run its course. We're still talking about it at the time when it's still a hotly debated and a, a plausibly considered topic. And why, why maintain all those things? If you're doing something in the name of research and scientific inquiry, why maintain that documentation in your findings of an alleged, you know, uh, member of the deer family? It, unless, unless I'm incorrect in saying that uh, a member of the deer family has something to do with national security. I don't know why you would main, you know, you would maintain that in such secrecy. Interesting. Well, you know, in your book, you talk about, as mentioned before, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film from uh, October of 1967. And obviously this is, is and always will be a, a very debated topic. Uh, what did you include in your book on this subject that, that's of interest when it comes to the Patterson-Gimlin film? What, what approach did you take with that? Well, the approach I took with the, with the Patterson-Gimlin film is, was not to – I didn't want to reinvent the wheel and examine the film like it has been examined, you know, for decades. I wanted to look at uh, be, the behavioral characteristics and that that are exhibited by by Patty in the film, and then look at the again going back to looking at the why behind the what. You know, what is what we see presented in the film? Obviously, is one thing, but when you stop to, and and look at, okay, why is she possibly acting in this manner? And I and I broke the, and I broke the encounter actually I broke the encounter up into in uh, into two different encounters. Uh, the first being the initial encounter is when um, uh, Mr. Gimlin and Mr. Patterson first encounter her before the film starts rolling and what actions she took prior to the film rolling. And then the second part is obviously the encounter with the film rolling. And and that that generated some questions with me that I was actually able to sit down and talk to Bob about. Um, and Bob sat and talked to me like he had known me for years. This was the first meeting he and I had ever had. And he sat and talked to me and he answered every question, just like I had been someone he had known for a long time. And, and, I, and I say in the book, I don't think I don't think Bob's ever met somebody he didn't know. And uh, he's he's just a he's he's a he's the last of a breed, man. And uh, so so that really helped me in my analysis of the initial assessment, because Bob kind of filled in some, some gaps there. and. And then when I went into the the second assessment or analysis from the when the when the film was actually rolling, I started looking at her behaviors and said, okay, well, what what would cause her? What could possibly cause her to do this? So 
I looked into all that and, and I obviously I'm arguing for a being that's in possession of higher intelligence right. uh, that, that, that expresses through their actions that we see on the film here that has expressed through their action, you know, cognitive processes, intelligent decision-making. Because and when you go in and, and look at all these things and you say, okay, what do I have to compare that to? Uh, what her behavior, what can I compare her behavior to? You know, and the only thing that I could really come up with that even remotely resembled what she did and why she did it would be how we would act in, in their similar circumstances in a similar environment. I also argue for, for conscious thought and consciousness and uh, sentience in, in the aspect of, you know, these beings are, in my opinion, capable of feeling. And, you know, and when you look at, you know, her behavior on the film, you have to stop and ask yourself why, you know, you know when I've been out in the, in the woods hunting or hiking or whatever, and let's say you jump a moose or you jump a deer or you jump an elk or whatever in, in the bush, when you jump one of those animals, they, they tend to run for the nearest, most immediate cover and, and, and to get out of your sight. Um, one thing that, you know, it's been argued that she didn't do is she didn't take the shortest route of egress to immediate cover. She took a longer route of egress to eventual cover. And I, and I cover that pretty extensively in the book and why she might have done that. But to me, that was a, if, if the argument for argument's sake that people have um, that there might've been some younglings there and she was trying to divert attention away from where the younglings might've been for argument's sake, if that is the case, then she would have made a conscious decision to do that. And when you start talking about beings that are making conscious decisions, then you're talking about beings with the capability to possess higher intelligence. And I think that's really kind of what I was trying to get across with my analysis of the, of the Patterson Gimlin film from my perspective. You know, I can't, I couldn't have honestly gone back and done anything any any analysis on the Patterson Gimlin film in, in the way that you know Bill Munns or or Dr. Meldrum and, and others have done. I mean, they're you know they've taken their expertise and applied it there. You know, I took my philosophical mindset and my analytical background and applied it to to the situation in a different manner. And um, you know, when you look at what they provided and try to maybe combine it with what I've provided, also it might give a little bit. You know, it might bring some clarity to the situation a bit, I think. It definitely raises a lot of interest, man. And though I'm not quite through reading the whole book, I did finish that chapter and I found it to be fascinating. I was intrigued with your approach, some of your ideas and hypotheses, and it was a stimulating read. I highly recommend people get a copy of this book when it's finally released, and we will uh, talk about that here shortly. Very interesting chapter with a different and unique take that was refreshing. I uh, will no doubt be rereading it again. Well, you know, the, you know, and, and also the, the, you know, with the uh, Osman interview or the Osman analysis of his abduction, you know, I mean, you, you get a really good, one thing that fascinated me about the Osman abduction was the fact that it gives us a, a direct insight into their culture and their, their, the fact that, you know, I covered down, I don't know if you've, if you've read that part yet where, where I discussed Maslow's theory of, of needs yes. and how it was applied here. You know, that was that was a tremendous aha moment that I had with, you know, when it was almost like Maslow slapped me in the face with a two by four. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, are you kidding me? This this actually he's reporting that this these things happen. 
And that to me, again, you know, if you're looking for, you know, higher intelligence and consciousness, you know, the fact that that was, you know, applied unknowingly years before Maslow's theory was developed, mind you, it, it was just astounding to me that 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 came to light. That was, like I said, another one of those aha moments that that the analysis revealed. And and that in itself has been an enlightening part of the journey is just you, you learn so much, not just about these beings, but I think you walk away learning more about yourself than than we may know in our lifetimes about these beings. So, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Now with the Albert Osman story and with the Patterson Gimlin film, obviously both mentioned in your book, are you vouching for their authenticity? Are you skeptical of either of them? Are, are you a firm believer? What are your thoughts? I, you know, I believe, I mean, I, I know what I saw and I, I believe that, that these be, these beings exist. I think we have enough historical documentation across the native American cultures that lend a lot of credibility to the fact that these beings were, were, or are, were, or tribes, there were clans, um, you know, some tribes report that they had, you know, near daily interaction with these and trading and, and stuff like that. And I think when you, t when you look at the historical context across the Native American tribes and you combine that with the, with the mountains of evidence that everything from the Patterson-Gimlin film to documented accounts in newspapers and journals back in the 1800s, and you come forward to modern day to to the things that that Dr. Meldrum and researchers and across the board, if if you could combine everybody's evidence, I think that you have if you were going to present it in a court of law in absentia of Sasquatch being there as your as your client. I think a good attorney could probably present this in a manner that would in all probability prove existence. I, I, I really do. And I really believe that the mainstream scientific community, that they're going to stand fast always, even, even if, in my opinion, if they had a body laying there right in front of them, I believe they would look at that as a, this is an exception, not the standard never has been the standard. It's just a, a freak of nature type thing. But, but in my opinion, I, I, I personally, I personally don't care what the mainstream scientific community has to say about it. And I think a lot of people out there focus too much on trying to prove mainstream science wrong. One day, one day it'll happen, but I don't think that the focus of research efforts should be on proving the mainstream science community wrong. Listen, these, these things exist. There's no doubt in my yeah. I Like I said, I know what I saw. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and people tell you it's personal, right? You, you can't prove it. But we, we both know these things exist. There's no doubt about it. Um, I agree with you about the, the scientific aspect to this. But uh, let's switch gears just a little bit here. Now, this book obviously was not slapped together. Uh, it was obviously not slapped together. You did your due diligence. You've done your homework. How long did it actually take you to, to physically put this book together? and the second part of that question is, what other resources did you find to utilize for this book? Well, I'd say probably the, the whole thing uh, took about probably, it's, I guess it's been the better part of the last 
almost almost a year for everything because like i said after i had my siding and everything i actually started taking notes and and everything just started compiling you know information compiles and and from a from an uh, an analyst perspective if, if you've got an organized desk then you're a sick man um and i my my desk has been just piled high with you know documents and notes and you know stuff i find online that i print off and read and and find notes in that and you know uh, one of the articles i found i i don't even know where it's at right now i'm looking at my desk i couldn't even tell you but um was on um it was a, a promatological article on uh, consciousness and so I, you know so that that was something that just kind of fell in my lap but you you have to really for me you know like i said you had to you had to get outside the box and you had to think unconventionally and and Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, thanks to the U.S. government, that's that's how I think, you know. So they they gave me all the tools of the trade that I needed to apply to this question, and uh, you know, I've I've been out of that game for a long time now, and and I was like, well, why not take what you have in your toolbox and use it uh, to your advantage and see what you can come up with. Um, obviously, the most important tool you have in the box is your own mind, and. Um, you're only limited in your assets and, and your research by, by your own mind and, you know, by your own, you know, your preconceived notions will limit you. That's why I decided, you know, stay grounded with traditional scientific methodology if you can, but you're not dealing with a, a traditionally, a traditional scientific topic here, which to me gives you the latitude to get out of bounds, but you don't want to go so far out of bounds that, you can't reel yourself back in, you know, and a lot of people like to use, I mean, I hear this a lot in documentaries and, and stuff, you know, a lot of people talk about Occam's razor and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, well, you know, Occam's razor can cut several ways and it's just a tool. It's, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that it's a, it gives you the definitive answer because it says that it most likely is the answer. And to me, most likely means there's still a lot of room. There's still a lot of variables there that you need to explore, um, even if you use that tool. But man, I just got into it, and like I said, I, it was documentaries. It was it was YouTube interviews with Bob Gimlin and numerous witnesses, and you know, it's it was different forums online and 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 participating in topics of discussion, um, which which can be fun. <laughs> which can be fun but i'll tell you there's there you know it it can also it's a good thing that nobody's you know home address and contact number comes up with a when when they post on a blog because i (laughs) there's you have to wonder sometimes and uh you just don't know who's going to end up knocking on your door but uh but no most of most of the ones i've i've participated in everybody's pretty much grounded you know i I've I've discussed, you know, been involved in topics discussing the nephilim and and the cloaking and you know other other topics of discussion, which to me is is, you know, those were some of the ones that interested me. So I, I wanted to participate in the discussion and 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 see what other people's thoughts on the matter were. You know, you, you know as well as I do that in this field, you have people that. It, it it is this and it can't be that and and that's the bottom line and any any deviation from 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 their perspective is you know can make you a, 
can make you a far, a, you know, less than popular person in, in those in, set in those settings. But right, I, th- I think it's all worthy of listening to. I think some of us, you know, more worthy of researching into than other topics are. But again, it was it was based on what interested me, and in, in in my in my first year, here are the things that interested me in my first year. Right. And, and here, and here's my thoughts on it. You know, this, my thoughts on it, it doesn't mean a hill of beans. It's just my thoughts on it. So Shane, what else in this book may be of interest to other folks out there? What else, uh, you know, without giving away the, everything in the book, cause it's extensive. I think it's, it's, uh, how many, how many pages, how big is this book? Well, I've, I've, I've cut a little bit of it out. Uh, the copy that I sent to you, um, I think was the, is, is close to, was was getting close to being the final draft. Mm-hmm. The initial the initial copy contained, I'd originally contained the uh, or included the the documents from the FBI release of uh, sixteen and ninety six, but I didn't like how they appeared in the in the book, so I took those out. And those were those were appendices A and B, and C and D were my working hypothesis and working counter hypothesis. Uh, but I took I took the FBI documents out because I just didn't like how they looked. And, um, you know, I, I curtailed uh, a few other things until I have some uh, more definitive proof on topics. But, you know, I think I think the biggest thing that may be of interest to, to a lot of people, I mean, I, I tried to put I tried to put a little bit of something for everyone in the book. You know, if you're not interested in the FBI files or the comparative analysis of that, then maybe you're interested in um, a discussion on the question of the Nephilim. Or maybe you're interested in the behavioral analysis that I've included in there on the Patterson Gimlin film and the Osman abduction. Or maybe, you know, you, maybe you want, you know, cloaking might be something that interests you. I, I, I tried to that that chap that part of that chapter turned into a <laughs> it, it, it was a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be to start with. And uh, but I threw a lot of science at that portion and. Like I say, like I say in the book, I threw some science at it to see if it would stick, and it actually started. Some of some of it started sticking, but can I sit here and tell you that I absolutely believe that they can or they cannot do this? No, I can't tell you that. Here's here here's my perspective on it because I know when I first heard about the cloaking, you know, I was I was sitting there scratching my head, going, "Do what? You're you're trying to tell me that." that we're dealing with something out of a hollow straight out of a Hollywood movie here. Is that what, is that what I'm understanding? You know? And, and so my thought was, if this is possible, there has to be some type of scientific process or processes behind this ability. And so that's really how I got into it was, was drilling down on the scientific processes behind it. And it was, it, it, it kind of, it, that was, it was actually a very, eye-opening topic to cover too and uh but but i like i said it's I, for me to sit here and say that i i do believe or don't believe that they that they can or can't do this i can't say that but what i can say is is that it's a pretty interesting topic and it, it as more reports come into it you know it, it's definitely for me worthy of my time to to continue adding to my research on that i that's that was something, like I said, it was really, it, it was really, uh, really enjoyable to do that aspect of it. But I don't, like I said, I, I try to stay scientific with it as scientific as possible without, you know, 
getting too far away from the ship, so to speak. Yeah, they say, you know, they say, you know, have a have an open mind. Just don't let your brain fall out. Right. So, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a it's an interesting chapter as well. Now, I'm not a proponent personally of Sasquatch cloak and all that. And I personally just my own personal opinion. Can I prove it otherwise? No, of course not. I don't I don't think they can. But that was an interesting chapter. And like you said, you're not saying anything absolute. You include it in your book. I, in your book, there's a lot. There's a little bit for everybody. It's a fascinating read for sure. I mean, I can't wait to finish it. I'm, I'm just not quite there yet, but I'm going to. Now, let me ask you a question. We, we talked about this the other night. I, I, you know, we, we had a quick call, phone call to discuss the show a little bit. And so I asked you, and it was kind of a funny topic, but I, I'd asked you, and I said, I'm going to ask you this on the show. Okay. What, what, what was the hardest part about writing this dang book? You know, and, and did you have any second thoughts about, uh, about going through with it? <laughs> so the hardest part about writing this book would would <laughs> has been working <laughs> trying to get <laughs> I, don't, I don't know i don't want to use their name on the air um no <laughs> but, uh, but trying to get the cover finished and and set <laughs> that, i never would have imagined <laughs> and that has been i mean it has i i had some of these books printed as first as first runs because and the reason i did that was to send some out to people um, who may be interested in, in obviously promoting uh, the book and obviously maybe eventually you know, having a serious discussion on the, on the topics that I presented in the book, but, but to other people in, you know, in the research community that, that I valued their, their input on it. I just want to see what they thought as well. I, I also sent the book out to several people, family, friends, relatives that didn't have any interest in the topic whatsoever. Uh, to get their feedback on it and and to see if if this if how I wrote about this topic could keep their attention span so but anyway the, the cover of the book so the first run editions that I had printed you know it's a six by nine book I, I did the cover the way that I wanted to do it I sent it in they sent me back a proof everything was great it looked great so I had these had these uh, first run edition really draft manuscripts basically with the, with the official cover on it uh, printed up. And so when I, when I go to uh, get ready to, for the, for the official release, I'm submitting all my information and, and everything. And they're like, well, what do you want your cover to look like? I'm like, ah, here, it's already done. I sent it in. I've gone back and forth with them countless times and I can, everything I have done that they've told me to do, I cannot get that cover to fit to their format. I don't know what and they're like. <laughs> They're like, it just won't, this is not going to fit on your book. I'm like, what do you mean it's not going to fit on my book? It's a six by nine book. I already have copies of it printed. And I know that it fits because this was the proof that the other company sent to me. <laughs> so don't tell me it doesn't fit. I know that it fits. <laughs> and so even up until right before you and I got on the air here, I just got an email back from them and they had sent me a proof. And I was just getting ready to approve and download it when, when you and I started up talking. That's been uh, probably the most challenging thing about the book. But another thing I will say too is that this was my first attempt at ever writing a book. And you know, when you sit down, when you when you write papers and stuff like that for college courses and and, and or for publication consideration and stuff, that that's one thing. But when you sit down to write a book, it's a bit of a different beast. And you have to find time in the beginning to sit down and make yourself right. And you also have to find time to get up and walk away from your writing for a little while 
and then come back to it. And, and that was the biggest thing for me was I never thought I was going to get to 50 pages. That was, that was the first thing. And then when I got to 50, I never thought I'd get to 75. And then when I got to 75, I said, well, you've come this far, you might as well finish it now. So, you know, but, but to sit down and, and, and to find time to make yourself sit down and write is, is, is probably one of the, is probably the second most uh, difficult thing to do about it. But Mm -hmm. have I had any second thoughts about letting it go? i I honestly, I don't think I have, you know, people are either going to like it or they're not. And that's, that's just the, the nature of the beast. You know, not everybody's going to agree on the topics of, or, or, or my perspective on the topics. And I completely understand that too. And I, and I discuss in the book about the, you know, being able to disagree respectfully. And I think that's, if, if what we're doing, if all of us are working, you know, in this unified effort, then we all should be able to disagree with each other respectfully. We're, we're not, we're humans. We're not always going to agree with every other human. I mean, that's what makes us different, but how you disagree says a lot about who you are. And if you disagree disrespectfully for reasons out of spite or for reasons such as to elevate your own personal status or your credibility, in my opinion, you don't elevate anything in that aspect. You, you kind of bring yourself down and, and you damage your credibility when you, when you don't disagree respectfully. Right. Well said. Well said. I, I really like your sentiments there, your thoughts. Well, so, you know, and I, and I think that that's, I think that that's important no matter what you do in life. It doesn't, it doesn't even have to have anything to do with this phenomenon. It, you know, whatever you do in life, I mean, you, you obviously, like I said, you're not going to agree with every, everything everybody says. It's just not possible. But when you disagree, disagree respectfully. And, and you know what? Just realize that it's just, just a disagreement and move on. You know, so it's simple. We, we agree to disagree. Let's have a scotch. Okay. Right. Simple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Shane, um, I got a next question here. Rolling through the show here. What do you want people to take away from your book? I mean, how, how is this book, in your opinion, if it is different from some of the other books on this subject matter, but what do you want people to take away from your book? I think my takeaway from this was, was number one, I, I didn't want to, I don't want it to be up to appear to be, um, you know, force feeding the world according to shame to anybody. And number two, I, I wanted the book to be one that promoted thought and generates questions and, and that anyone can say, okay, I disagree with what he says right here, and here's why. And if that promotes them researching the why that they want to disagree with what I have to say, then that to me is, is, is that, that's reaching the audience, in my opinion. You know, people that, if they can, you know, take, this, take what I have to say and say, you know, hey, let's, this, is, this guy's really promoting, you know, think for yourself. And, and, and if you doubt what he, he openly says, if you doubt what he what he's presented, then go back and conduct your own analysis and see what you come up with. And, and, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm really open. I, I include my email address in the book, you know, let me know. I, I, I welcome all comers, you know, and we can talk about it and we can, you know, there's no telling in, in good conversation, even with someone that disagrees with you, there's no telling what you can learn and what can you might discover, you know, jointly with somebody in that aspect. But, you know, my biggest takeaway is, Hey, you know, think for yourself. You, you don't have to believe what I what I have to say about it. You know, you 
you've got the tools out there, you've got all the resources out there, just like I've discovered, to, to formulate your own opinions and 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 do so open-minded and and see what you come across. And you just never know something you may come across may bust this whole thing wide open. And it mm -hmm. might be such a minute detail that busts this whole mystery wide open. And that's that I think that's the takeaway. From what I've read this far, it's well written it's well thought out and it's a uh, something that uh, it's a book that I'll, i'm going to read twice over once i finish it the first time around now what are your some of your future plans coming down the pike here are you going to do a second edition i think we kind of discussed that last night yeah that's going to be uh i'm going to do a second uh edition or or a part two to this one in, in the future i'm, I'm going to let this one get out there and, and see how it if it uh, takes hold and see if a, a part two would be something mm -hmm. from a, from a quite a different perspective, but it would be, I think it would, it would fall well underneath the, the title of the book. But in the, in the meantime, uh, right, right now, uh, the past month or so, and this just kind of happened just out of the blue. Uh, Todd was up here visiting and I was uh, showing him around Alaska and we, we happened to go down to Seward and went out on this, um, wildlife viewing crews and I had worn a shirt uh, I had a sweatshirt on it was like a, a Bigfoot research organization or some type of I don't know something I got somewhere and uh, there was this native gentleman there on the boat and I he, he pointed at me and 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 kind of nodded his head and I thought he wanted me to get out of the way so he could take a picture off the back of the boat so I kind of stepped to the side and he goes no no and he pointed at, my sh at his chest like for my shirt he goes they're here and so that has turned into um, really what well, Todd and it was funny because his niece was getting married on the boat that afternoon and he was performing the, the ceremony. And uh, I took a, a lot of pictures of their ceremony and stuff for him and sent them to him. And, and uh, we, we ended up getting invited to the wedding reception the following day. So, it was, <laughs> so, so we, 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 you know, and it turned out he's, he's a native chief of a local tribe that's that's turned into uh, a lot of conversations and and uh maybe some ends with um some of the other tribe tribes up here but i'm i'm working on a book now that deals with um alaska uh the bigfoot phenomenon here in alaska and it's going to be uh we we've had up here thanks to dr dr alley and uh michael thompson who they run a page called uh dr robert alley correct yes yeah they run a pay a web a website called uh, sasquatchtracker.com and it's it's specific to Alaska. Um, obviously, Dr. Alley has a lot of from his from his book Raincoat Sasquatch. You know, he has a lot of a, a ton of information on uh, encounters and such down in the uh, that that Raincoast region. But what I ended up doing was getting on their website, and I've actually got a map going on my wall right now. They have a documentation. They have a DocuBank of of over 330 sightings uh, or encounters or events here since 1899, and so I've started plotting those out on a map and um, been doing research into the cultural aspects of of this phenomenon here in Alaska amongst amongst the tribes, and I've also discovered that there were some uh, archaeological findings uh, in the early 1940s down in the um, the Aleutian Island chain, as well as a uh, an archaeological finding over in what they call the Atlea Goldfields, where what appears to be have been burial 
mounds were unearthed and that revealed beings that were between seven to nine feet tall. But strangely enough, the, 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 <laughs> the findings from the Aleutian Island area, those remains disappeared, strangely enough. And I'll, I'll discuss that a little more in depth in my book. But I've also turned up that there were uh, a previous, some previous inhabitants that came across the land bridge that were large peoples uh, that, that fit these descriptions of extremely large peoples. Um, they're not very well known. And uh, I'm, I'm, I've gotten in talking to the cultural museum and stuff up here about uh, potentially more information on these beings, but it's very, it's very difficult to come by, but they have done some DNA studies of uh, some remains they found up here that proved that there were actually people here before what they thought were the, uh, the Inuit peoples came across that were large people, but just to simply disappeared. So that's, that's my future project. I'm hoping to have that all wrapped up maybe by March or April. It's not going to be a really, really thick book. It's going to be more of a, like I said, a Alaska central book, but it'll cover down on a lot of, a lot of unique aspects of this phenomenon and, and, and different. And there's one potential, you might get a kick out of this. There's one potential thing that I'm exploring right now that is a, again, it goes against the grain and, and it'll probably ruffle some feathers of the Bigfoot phenomenon that a lot of people won't talk about or, or even consider. And that is, the possibility of uh, a modified hibernation state of, of these beings in the very, very interior regions. I have a friend that works at University of Alaska Fairbanks. She works in a neuroscience department where they study hibernating ground squirrels. And um, her boss was or has been or is part of a NASA project seeing if they can actually induce hibernation into human beings for deep space travel. So I'm actually looking at that aspect as well of, of, of a modified hibernation, not a, not a complete hibernation, but maybe a modified version of it uh, for, the, for the interior regions where the winters get so harsh and, and migratory efforts would, would literally take longer than the season of the summer would allow. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting. Well, I encourage people to get out there and purchase your upcoming book. I'm looking forward to your future endeavors and some of your future work. So, Shane, when is your book due out and where can people find it? It's due out November 5th on Amazon.com. There will be, uh, you can choose between uh, the paperback version or uh, a Kindle ebook. So, that's, that's when it's scheduled for release. Now, that all depends on the cover issue. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope uh, we get no, that figured out. We're, we're going to get that squared away today. So, but now November 5th is, is the, is the release date. And I, I've put out some, I put out some blurbs and stuff on different uh, uh, Facebook pages and stuff like that. Everything's coming back very well received and, and uh, a lot of interest in the book. And I, and I just hope people find it to, like I said, if you, if it, if it can generate thought and promote questions, then, you know, fantastic i i did what i intended to do so i'm I'm just hoping for that fantastic i do guarantee this shane you will generate questions and you will generate thought for those individuals that check out your book that's due out of course november 5th and you can purchase that on amazon or you can get the kindle version of shane land's book and we will have shane land back on the show for sure shane if you're ever in the area man 
here in Washington, and I know you are occasionally, give me a call and stop by. Absolutely. Be good to see you again. Likewise. Thanks for having me today, man. All right, that wraps up another episode of Monster X Radio. Again, I want to thank my guest Shane Land for joining me on the show. Be sure to check out his new book, Bigfoot Unclassified, an unconventional assessment. And that, of course, comes out later this week on Amazon and Kindle. I also want to thank all of our listeners. Remember, today's myth could be tomorrow's reality. Take care. Thank you for joining Monster X Radio.